Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 7. I'm your host, Jason Hill. And even though it was overcast yesterday, 
I still got a little sunburned pulling weeds. Do with that information what you will. Now, on to more pressing business. For anyone who's worked a night shift in a hospital, you may be familiar with what is known as the witching hour, a period of time between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. when strange things happen and people are more likely to die. This is something I may have mentioned previously on the podcast because the memory of it still gives me the shivers. It was the dead of night, hospital was quiet as the grave, but fully lit, just completely empty the way it always is, and I accidentally got locked in a dark room, which must have been literally the only room with no working lights in the whole damn building. And by dark, I mean pitch black dark. And almost immediately after the door shut, I was seized by such a palpable feeling of utter dread that I damn near screamed. Later, I quit nights and never worked a third shift again. But that incident always stuck with me whenever I think about how many people die in a hospital every week. And that dead silence... So quiet, you can hear the rush of blood through your carotid artery, like your heart is beating inside your skull, and the dark is looking right into your eyes, waiting for you to scream. Yeah, I don't regret for a minute quitting nights, and after this story, many of you graveyard shifters out there may be inclined to do the same. Shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies, and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Michael Page, I give you The Man Who Ate Ghosts. The days all started with the briefing room, a wall-to-wall palette of aged pastels and stark hospital grayness. In the center of our little room, an oval-shaped table dominated the space with every seat filled with a tired nurse. From one of the windows, a single bar of morning light often slipped stubbornly past the shutters. It was this dull, drab room where we discussed things such as safety concerns, the population of our current patients, and the newest of the ward's arrivals. In a work environment prone to shifting each and every day, such meetings were vital to maintain the facility's pulse. As I sipped my morning coffee and slid the bitter warmth down my throat, I could not help but eye the newest face of our staff. A young man with a sharp, short haircut and a stony, 
unsmiling face. Alec Barnes, a pest. Throughout the entirety of our meeting, and every meeting after that, he could not just keep quiet, to sit and listen as we established consensus and resolved our daily conflicts. No, he had to chime in at every moment he could, bringing everything to a grinding halt to interject with, I have to disagree. Well, where I came from, we did this. If I could just stop you there. Oof, a pest indeed. Every clinic had at least one of his sort. Newly graduated, hungry to get out there and feel out the unit they'd soon be running. We affectionately referred to this sort as Weisenheimers. Those who can do no wrong. Instant virtuosos of the field. These people were easy enough to spot. Their postures tense with self-conviction, nodding impatiently as you speak to them, as though already knowing what you were about to say, and that you were simply moving too slow for their intelligence. And you, only you, are the one doing things wrong. I can still recall one in particular, a young know-it-all who had become a nuisance during our labs and clinicals, chattering in on how we'd been doing everything incorrectly, and not quote, by the book. That is, until one day I spied the bag of dopamine she'd secured for a patient draining itself into their sheets. Never faster had I seen one's face flush so red. Although I could have written her up for the incident, I instead smiled and helped her through it, albeit begrudgingly, while also fighting back the urge to laugh at the absurdity of it all. And what happens to all the self-importance after moments like this? They are jettisoned out, left to the scorn of those they'd obnoxiously reprimanded, and you can bet your bottom dollar the case of Alec Barnes will be no different. Reality has a way of compressing our egos. Once the meeting had finished and the charge nurse had assigned our patient loads, I set out to complete my tasks for the day. Within the confines of our 25-bed unit, our patients mostly consisted of those recovering from injury whether accidental or purposely inflicted. Attempted suicide was a frequent conviction here, and most patients were more of a danger to themselves than others. That being said, there were always those we had to be wary of. In my years as a psychiatric nurse, I'd been kicked, scratched, bitten, punched, and for the better half of a day, verbally threatened. Still... I never let it sodden my spirits, no matter how much saliva or curses were hawked at me. Contrary to how social media or cinematic horrors may portray them, psychiatric wards are not the dark, dismal places of psychopaths and tortured screams in the hallways. They are places of healing, of alleviation, a haven for those physically alive, but internally tormented. Yes, some kicked and shrieked until their throats split, but a good deal held a much quieter, unseen pain. That was why I was there, to help ease the cold terrors of their futures. And as for the case of our newest arrival, a Mr. Roland Buell, he would become my next big project. It was raining on the night they brought him in, I spied him rolling by on a stretcher, his cold face wet and dripping. His eyes flickered with transient consciousness, 
perhaps barely grasping the shapes and sounds around him. For a moment, we actually held each other's gaze as he was whisked away to the intensive care unit. Ten paper clips, eight marbles, and five drywall nails. These were the objects removed from Mr. Buell's stomach. He was diagnosed with pica, a rare disorder in which one has an urge to ingest inedible objects, feeling the same pangs of temptation as one would a cigarette or perhaps an alcoholic beverage. Encompassing that fact, he'd also been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, severe anxiety, and post-traumatic stress. Despite my history in the psychiatric field, I could not help but feel woefully unprepared for him. If only I had even the slightest clue. I stopped at Mr. Buell's door, surveyed my notes once more, and carefully let myself inside. The room was reminiscent of a college dorm, with a single window providing a glossy view of the parking lot. Mr. Buell was awake and currently hunched over his table, a wilderness of hanging, stringy hair covering his face. His legs were crossed at the ankles, both shoelaces removed. He appeared to be writing vigorously into a crossword puzzle with one of our flexible ballpoint pens. I knocked lightly against the door, which prompted him to turn toward me. Good morning, Mr. Buell. I smiled as I introduced myself. How are you feeling today? From out of the mesh of hair, a thin face stared back at me, giving a look I'd describe as a tight-lipped vacancy. Eyes wide and oblong, but not quite focused. He appeared somewhere north of his forties. From across his chin and up his cheeks, a scattering of scars was etched into his features. Possible self-harm, my thoughts mused. I continued the greeting. My name's Jason. I'm one of the registered nurses here to ensure everything is alright and that your time with us is a good one. Is there anything I can help you with? His eyes held tired water between them, inspecting me up and down, trying to get a read on me as I was him. His mouth then pulled into a small grin, which rumpled the scratch marks. You have piano fingers. I'm sorry? I asked, not expecting such a statement. He lifted his hands and flexed his fingers. Piano fingers. Father had them too. He used to play all the time in his office, mostly the gymnopedis and a tad of Chopin. Do you play at all? Despite his cranky appearance, his voice carried a genuine playfulness behind it. <laughs> Not at all, I chuckled. My mother had one of her friends give me lessons when I was younger, but unfortunately none of them stuck. Yes, Mrs. Brown was an avid teacher of the arts, but now I can only remember the reek of bone broth carried on her breath. Anyhow, it was nice to officially meet you. Please don't hesitate to let me know if you need anything at all. We will do everything we can to help you. Of course, he answered, rubbing a finger along his scar-fringed chin. It was not long before we realized the true extent that Mr. Buell needed to be monitored. From the television room, he plucked out the power button, as well as both volume buttons from the remote and swallowed their small plastic bodies. 
From his bathroom, he twisted the cap off one of the soap dispensers and negotiated it down his throat. And before we could catch it, he'd already swallowed the flexi-pen we'd given him for his crosswords. As arrangements were made to have his stomach pumped once again, we mulled over different treatment options for his condition. In most cases, pica was caused by an iron deficiency in the body, leaving it craving to replenish itself with something to make up for the lacking minerals. Therefore, we prescribed him an iron supplement. After a few weeks of the dosage, two tablets a day and an iron-rich diet, his pining for non-food items had considerably lessened. I was ecstatic about the progress, thoroughly convinced that before long his symptoms would be entirely abated. Unfortunately, I would come to find out we were only scratching the surface of Roland Buell. As far as the supplements had taken him, we'd soon discover that his hospital bracelet had gone missing, and not so mysteriously. I'd come to discover that he'd stopped taking the tablets completely, hiding them under his tongue only to spit them out later. On top of that, he'd entirely stopped eating anything that we provided him. The next evening, I stopped by his room to once again check on him. Roland was, yet again, seated at his writing desk, his spine stiffly straight, and his neck bent towards the window. A tray of food sat on the bed next to him, cold and uneaten. I scooped it up for him. You should really eat something, Mr. Buell. Otherwise, they may have us give you a feeding tube. He didn't acknowledge me, merely holding that gaze toward the grayish smear of asphalt outside. Protests like this were not out of the ordinary, especially for patients coping with anxiety and severe depression. As I turned to report back on his state, a thin, withered voice crept out of him. It's coming. His lips were shaking. What do you mean? I asked trying to dissect what he just said. What is coming? But it was no use. He returned to silence, maintaining the glazed stare out the window. Evidently, our conversation had ended. That same evening, a scream resonated down the halls. It was coming from Mr. Buell's room. I was the first to arrive, quickly bursting through the door and witnessing him flailing in his sheets. His hands clawed and grasped at nothing, while his thick heels kicked helplessly about. Assessing the situation, I tried talking him down first to calm his nerves behind the frenzied cries. He was unresponsive, lips curled back from his gums and his eyes squirming wildly in their sockets. Then, in a quick motion... His thrashing hands converged and closed around his throat, locking into a death grip. I moved to pry his hands off of him, trying to carefully break the chokehold he had on himself. Even with his throat being wrung in his own grip, a pressed scream still squeezed its way out. As his grip started to slacken and the smallest pinprick of victory eased my pulse, the howling was suddenly stopped and replaced by an irking sound, the telltale sign of someone about to retch. Not wanting him to vomit flat on his back, I moved to push his body to the side, all the while looking eagerly towards the doorway to see if more help had arrived. But 
as I turned back toward him, everything stopped. My heart increased to a dreadful acceleration. I tried to take a breath, but couldn't. Something dark and different happens when an unspeakable horror hits you. Like every nerve in your body, every sensory input to the outside world has suddenly been cut. Your voice is too brittle to speak. Your eyes are too afraid to close. Things, perhaps semblances of thoughts, beat desperately toward your brain, only to drown before reaching its surface. It had happened so quickly I could only barely process the ghostly outline of Roland's face or the sudden misshapen lump in his throat. Fingers, long, wet fingers were gleaming between his teeth, reaching outward from the dark, pink depths. They were bruised into blackish-purple colors, patches of gangrene on their tips. Strings of shiny spittle stretched and snapped between their wriggling joints. A pungent bacterial odor thickened the air. Roland's eyes rolled upward as his body heaved and let out a wretched gargle. The fingers bent forward, curling over his face like a spider on its backside, and began to tug at his jaws, trying to pull them wider. Their jagged, split nails scraped across his chin, his cheeks, his nose, digging grooves into his flesh. The sound of footsteps entering the room brought me back. Another nurse had arrived. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I peered once again at Roland's face, coated now in a webwork of fresh, bleeding wheels. No fingers. Not at all. Together, the other nurse and I restrained Roland and safely injected him with a dose of B-52. That's 2 milligrams Ativan, 5 milligrams held all in one needle, then 50 milligrams of Benadryl in the other. The Benadryl helped offset the side effects of the held all. With the collective effort of three different drugs coursing through his system, the struggles finally ceased. It's a lot of damage, the other nurse commented surveying the superficial marks on his face. We should have put him under long before this. I realized then the help was none other than Alec Barnes, the Weisenheimer. 
Whatever he said next never reached me. I'd already left to get some ointment for Roland's cuts. I didn't sleep well that night, dozing in and out without any hope of catching a dream. Before long, I was awaking and standing over the sink of the bathroom, both hands against the porcelain. Amidst the rubble of my thoughts, my brain was scavenging for answers, something that could explain what had transpired. But the answers came up short. There wasn't enough substance, not any material to form some sort of clarity out of what I saw. I could only imagine those fingers, their rotting pores, their twitching knuckles, jutting out of a man's mouth, trying to hoist an even larger something out of the tube of his throat. The image made my insides feel wretched, and a brief nausea rolled around my belly. This is absurd. I snapped back at the disgusting thoughts. Ludicrous, disgusting, get a hold of yourself. To give such a thing credence was unacceptable. It was a stressful moment, a fabrication of a rattled mind in a stressful situation. That is the end of the matter. No further discussion required. I gargled some mouthwash, clapped both hands against my cheeks, and returned to bed, repeating the same determined tempo. But when I did finally fall asleep, there was no protecting my dreams. I was back there again, standing in Roland's room while his blurry shape screamed and writhed in the sheets. I tried to restrain him before he could harm himself, only to have my arms reel back on their own and grasp my throat instead. The last wisps of breath pulled out of me, in the pit of my gullet. Something begins to move, clawing its way upward. I lurched forward, squeezing my eyes open and closed rapidly, trying desperately to wake myself up. But it's no use. I can only wrench desperately as my head flops back and the thing inside my throat forces its arrival. My eye finds the wall, just as my shadow spouts a new bouquet of spidery horrors. The next time I saw Roland in person, it was during his supervised access to the outdoor patio converted from the fourth-floor rooftop of our hospital. It was to give patients an airy reprieve outside the ward. Flower pots hung from the fence that enclosed the space, along with a wall painted into a mural and a few basketball hoops. Mr. Buell was adamant that I was the one to supervise him that day. Tellingly, the new scratches etched into his face had healed, breaking off into faded, fractal patterns. He took a seat at one of the diamond blue benches and sucked in a deep breath of air. Rain's on its way. You can smell it. Hopefully not before my drive home, I sighed, catching a whiff of it myself. That freshness. Just before the storm. Mmm, he hummed passively, and after a short pause between us, popped the sudden question. You saw it. Didn't you? 
The question sent a jolt up my spine and, if only for a moment, flashed over my face. He took notice of this, the liveliness in his voice kicking up an octave. You did, didn't you? What are you referring to? I asked, rolling my shoulders back. He leaned against the thermoplastic backrest of the bench. You're scared to admit it. I get it. I do. But neither of us can be so lucky to deny it. My eyes wandered the patio, looking rather self-consciously for anyone else around. We were alone. You're going to have to be more specific for me. I'm not quite following you. His tired, watery eyes focused on me. I had to wait for you to see them before I could say anything. Otherwise, you'd never believe me. I know you wouldn't. Then his split lips curled into a smile. But if you don't listen now, you won't know what you saw. And you'll always be left to wonder... I didn't answer, but perhaps it was the absorbed look in my face that had cued for him to continue. It started with ice, he said, pausing as if to mull over that fact. I loved the texture of it, the feeling of crunching it between my teeth and tiny, crackling bits. It was one of the few things that could quell my anxiety, and when that wasn't enough... I turned to chewing on paint chips and sucking on coins for a good while. I was a very anxious boy, you see. A gust of wind whistled through the fence and bobbed the hanging flowers. His tongue lapped between his lips. I grew up in a wealthy home with wealthy parents. One of them as sweet as can be, while the other was emotionally aloof. Can you guess which one father was? He asked with a grin, the stereotypical provider who considered the financial support to our family enough of a bond between us. Naturally, we weren't very close, and as my tendencies intensified, he and mother were thoroughly convinced it was merely a phase. Don't ask me why it wasn't, I couldn't tell you. All I knew was that my cravings for the indigestible only grew worse as I got older. I stayed silent and listened, not daring to say anything else to throw him off point. Although it wasn't my task to ask him questions and jot them down in a notebook, I still felt responsibility to understand him. He'd finally opened up, no longer disappearing behind that flat stare at the window. Answers were best found during the low tide, after all. Surprisingly enough, I wasn't the only one with compulsions in our household. Roland chuckled. Father was a collector. Not for coins or old, dusty vinyl. He dabbled in other things. A canteen once slung over the shoulder of a dead soldier. A worn noose used to break necks in the 19th century. Even an ancient skull, with half its dome cleaved by some horrible means of torture. These were things that interested him, much to my mother's dismay. Little pieces of the dark he enjoyed finding. 
I'm not even sure where he got his antique piano, but I know that every so often I would hear the same two keys get struck in the middle of the night. So one day, while he and mother were away on a business trip, I'd snuck into his studio to look at the private collection myself. One of them caught my eye, a piece of jewelry that once belonged to a dead woman, said to have cursed her with an early death. I felt drawn to it, like an impulse that compelled me to believe that somehow it was mine, that it belonged to me. So I swallowed it. A look of horror crossed him. I was petrified that night, absolutely horrified that he'd come back to find the ring missing out of his collection. Then the following night it passed through me. I fished it out of my waist, cleaned it intensely, and returned it back to the collection unharmed. My father was none the wiser. Soon enough, I did it again, this time with the bone of a black cat used in a witch's hex. It had started to feel like a game, but soon became more of a ritual between us. He would bring something home. I'd swallow it, even if just a piece of it, and wash off the blood and stool as I passed it, and placed it back there. Sure, there may have been some pain and slight discoloring here and there, but never enough for him to notice. It felt different, um, celestial even. Father and I finally found something in common. We both had a liking for objects. His face then fell, becoming ghostly stoic as his voice lost its shape. When it came time for me to move out and on with my life, I had to put an end to our little game. He never did find out what I'd been doing to his collection, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. I'd managed, or so I thought, to wean myself off of them. But as time passed, I began to have strange thoughts about all of those cursed haunted things, like how they had felt suddenly different in my hands after I passed them, almost like the energy they once held was no longer there, like it had been left behind somewhere inside me. And what if all that energy, of whatever it was they had, was then left to brew and ferment over the years? until it gestated into something else. He rubbed a pale hand over his chest. Something that finally wants out. As his voice finally trailed off into silence, I spoke up. What do you mean by once out, exactly? The glaze over his eyes had returned. I'd like to go back inside now, please. That was the last and longest conversation we'd ever have together, and he was done sharing that day. I tried to stray my thoughts away from what he told me. It was just too much to digest. 
I didn't feel like myself in the ward anymore, like the weight there had become too crushing, like something were about to crest over the rise, and all I could do was brace for an impact that I couldn't see. What happened next occurred on a late Sunday evening, three days after Roland Buell's unshakable silence. I was making my usual rounds in the ward and stopped by to drop in and check on him. I knocked three times, opened his door, and stepped routinely inside. Roland was not in his bed or stationed at his usual spot at the writing desk. The door to his bathroom was inched slightly open, the sound of a running sink coming from inside. Hey, Mr. Buell, just here to check on you. Is everything all right? I called. There was no answer. Mr. Buell, are you all right? Still nothing, only the steady draw of running water. Without warning, the bathroom door swung open, rebounding off the rubber stop and then rebounding again off Roland Buell's body. He had blundered out backwards on his heels, both hands locked around his neck. His face was flushed into a darkish plum color. Heaps of foam dribbled out of his mouth, rolling over his lips, which had gone blue. Tears streamed out of his eyes, which bulged from their sockets. A single sound emerged from him, the gargled note of air trapped in his throat. Choking, my thoughts screamed. He's choking! I grabbed at him, spinning his body around as both of my arms locked around his waist. Never in my life had I performed the Heimlich, but in that moment, it was do or die. I pressed hard into his abdomen with a quick upward thrust, practically lifting him off his feet. His body jerked back, but there was no luck dislodging whatever was inside his throat. The door opened. Someone else had heard the commotion. I looked feverishly toward them while administering another ineffective thrust. The other person was none other than Alec Barnes. Even amid a panic, I despised his presence there greatly. What's wrong? What's happening? He asked, which only infuriated me. Choking! I snapped yanking Mr. Buell back yet again. Hot blood coursed through my arms. I forced down a swallow, trying to wet my dry mouth. But in that same instant, with both my arms fastened around him, I had felt something peculiar. A sudden shift of his insides. An almost tumbling motion, far too pronounced to ignore. The Weisenheimer stepped back into my peripheral. Let me do it. I can... I've got it! I hissed at him, hoisting Mr. Buell's body upward again, harder than I ever thought I could. His chest heaved as more strained gasps came out of him. Bits of his spittle slopped over my arms. He then lurched forward in my grasp. It felt as though his insides had all decompressed at once, like an airtight container being popped off. Somewhere in my consciousness, for whatever reason in the world, I imagined a man being blown out of an ejection seat, or a tube-like anemone unlatching itself from a rocky surface. His throat opened. He let out a watery scream of pain and retching. 
Somewhere near us, Alec made a noise. Something that sounded like, Oh God. Oh dear God. Something hit the floor. Or rather, flopped to the floor. Roland Buell went limp in my arms. Alec Barnes let out a scream. Frantic movements skittered across the floor, followed by the sound of something then being torn out of drywall. My eyes raced around, but the slew of everything at once had sucked all the blood from my brain, flushing its data. I checked on Roland, who had slumped over like a puppet in my arms. It was unresponsive, with eyes staring blankly forward and lips hanging loosely open. I checked for his pulse and found no rhythm. Lying him on the floor, I lined both hands on top of the other and pumped until the strings of my wrists burned. Then, I pinched his nose and forced air down his windpipe. As I repeated this over and over, my eyes caught the fresh trail of blood and bile that traveled from us all the way to the bathroom. The trail continued beneath the vanity, where the grill of the air duct now hung lopsided and open, its right nail forced entirely out of the socket. Alec Barnes was frozen in his spot. The shock that distorted his face was almost too vivid to be real, and even as more staff arrived, he still remained there, stricken with horror. Roland Buell was pronounced dead by our medical examiner. The manner of death, an esophageal rupture. Several tears had perforated the walls of his throat along with a dislocated jaw, entirely unhinged from his skull. We weren't yet sure what caused the rupture as nothing could be traced other than the aftermath of ruined tissue. Rumors had floated around between staff of possible causes but did not hold much water to them. Truth be told, not many of us knew how to handle the loss of a patient not otherwise terminal. As for what became of Alec Barnes, he quit spontaneously and left without further notice. Tried as I did to pry information out of him, he dismissed me, shaking his head and repeating that he had seen nothing. End of story. I could see the panic in his eyes, held back by two thin sacks, threatening to tear at any moment. Not a single particle of self-importance left. Perhaps I've even felt the same way that perhaps I did catch a glimpse of something that day. A gray sleek of a shape pulling itself through the opened air duct. Membranous. Slug-like. But I must avert those thoughts, sort them out properly, dissect them one by one. That is the only way I can keep myself together. Yet, despite all these, the strangeness around our ward has continued to circulate. 
Patients have been claiming to hear something in the walls. Even some of our staff had reported it as well. A quick, insipid scratching coming from the ducts to the point where they believe an animal is trapped up there. As many times as we've had the vents checked, there's still no proof of such implication. I've heard it myself from time to time, sometimes awfully close. So close. Just on the other side of the duck's cover. But I dare not peer inside. To even risk what I may see. The source of the noises. The ward's newest admission. You've been listening to The Man Who Ate Ghosts by Michael Page. Michael Page is a novelist and short story author, as well as a frequent contributor to the creepypasta community. In the man's own words, I absolutely love writing horror stories, but I'm also not a one-trick pony. I will write about anything and everything, albeit you will not have any lack of dark writing. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free, and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill, for yet another dance with darkness. I bet you good night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, 
Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.